been doing has been asking the question about what it might be that people would find compelling about following Jesus. Well, today we find Jesus sort of pitted against the embodiment of evil itself, taking it head on. It's a backlash of the titans, right? Just like the old comic book days. But I wonder if many of you have noticed that sort of the, uh, the superheroes of today, of your children's life, is not quite like the superheroes that when you were, when you were growing up. You know, postmodern modern superheroes are, are, are sort of different from the ones of 30 years ago. Uh, when I was growing up, I remember watching and getting excited about old black and white uh, uh, shows of the old Superman with George Reeves. And the funny thing about that old, car- it wasn't a cartoon, it was excellent live action uh, show, was that Superman was never really in trouble. He shows up, he saves the day, he swoops in at the last moment, and everything's fine. But fast forward to the mid-1980s, and actually only the comic book nerds out there in the group, and you know who you are, will remember that there was a comic book that was released by a guy named uh, Alan Moore called The Watchman. I'm not recommending this, by the way. But you began in that sort of moment to see a different view of a superhero. Because what you found was these were emotionally fragile, often abusive, conflicted, some of them addicted superheroes. Far more inconsistent than the sort of counterparts of their early age. Now you suddenly found out that Batman, you know, had a troubled childhood that left him with this host of mental imbalances. You find that the Wolverine of the X-Men fame lives in constant pain, matched only by his inward rage. And even Spider-Man lives with constant guilt over the death of his Uncle Ben, finding himself in situations which always put him in unwinnable circumstances. I remember the first time my children came exposed to this in the Pixar film, The Incredibles. You know, the little costume designer Edna at one point laments that she used to design for gods. But by the end of the movie, you have Mr. Incredible confessing that he's just not strong enough to be able to risk losing his family again. So here's my question for you this morning. Which kind of superhero is Jesus? Is he more like the old school sort of Teflon-coated superhero that never misses a mark? Or is he more vulnerable, like the postmodern superhero? Well, I again, won't come as much surprise to you. I think Jesus embodies both, but in a very unique and fascinating way. The actual story that we're looking through here in his temptation has a moral to it that I think doesn't show up until you get to the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, you get this, where the writer says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For, listen to this, because he himself suffered and was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the reason why I think this hero is so compelling. Because every human being struggles with temptation. And every human being wants to know that there is someone who can swoop in at just the right moment and rescue us from trouble. But at the same time, everyone wants to know that that person understands us, that they get us, that they relate to us. And I think what these early Christians found compelling about this person was that they saw him as being just that kind of superhero. 
So before I dive into the points that I want to make, I want to do just a quick unrelated commercial here that I'll probably end up doing about once a year during my tenure here, and that is to remind you uh, that the pastor that you have hired has never had an original thought in his life, and as it turns out, I actually don't even think that novelty is a virtue for the theological tradition from which we uh, uh, come, uh, that love the faith once delivered as we do. Uh, but I really do see my job as being a gatherer of insights from commentaries and preachers over time. And at every turn, I make an attempt to cite people to whom I am dependent. But there are other times in which I'm more dependent than not on resources. And so you've heard me quote from Brian Chappell and Tim Keller and Brian Habig and people like Sinclair Ferguson. I use their material, but today is one of those days where I'm very much indebted uh, to Tim Keller for my first two points and Michael Wilcock, my favorite commentator on the, uh, the book of Luke from the Bible Speaks Today series. So disclaimer offered. Three points this morning. Number one, we want to see the inevitable conflict. Number two, I want to look at the center of the fight with temptation. And then number three, we want to try to uncover the key to victory. Okay? So first of all, the inevitable conflict. Now, verses two, verses one and two of this chapter really don't seem weird because we're way too used to this passage. Remember, Jesus has just been commissioned and he has been lavished after his baptism by the affection of his father. The text even goes on to say that he is full of the spirit. He's on his way to go out and bring about the kingdom. There is no person who has ever lived who has been more on top of his spiritual game than Jesus of Nazareth at this moment. So what happens right after that? Suffering and temptation. And here's what I wonder. Does that sound wrong to you? Does it seem like it should be this way? Because, you know, when you're in the center of God's will, that's when everything goes great for you, right? Hmm. Well, at this point, I think it's important for us to mention that the Christian church has constantly been besieged throughout its history by a false gospel that goes against the reality that the Bible portrays, popularly called the prosperity gospel. It has reared its head in um, uh, American evangelicalism yet again. The prosperity gospel, so-called, defines the good news in this way. You ready? Come to Jesus and get a better life. That's it. Now, my guess is, is that probably sounds reasonable at first glance, except that it's not at all what happened to Jesus. Jesus immediately is led into some pretty gross suffering while he's at the center of God's will for his life. And what happens is, is when the prosperity gospel begins to get into our thinking, we begin to realize that I have a pattern. That is, I think to myself, I'm suffering. God must have something against me. He's punishing me. You know, ordinary life is supposed to be smooth and easy. And when, if something goes wrong, obviously somebody messed up. But Jesus disproves that. Jesus proves that you can have all kinds of problems and struggle. And nobody's messed up. I think there's actually a fairly easy metric that you can use to look inside your own soul to see how much the Spirit has infected you. You know, typically when life stops working for us, we become blamers. You know, a blamer is someone who is always pointing at someone else for the fact that their life isn't going well. You know, perhaps it's a family member. You know, if my parents hadn't raised me the way in which they did, you know, if my children would just get their act together. 
Sometimes it's a certain social clique in town. Well, you know the popular crowd. You know the sort of cool kids in town. Sometimes it can become even entire neighborhoods. (laughs) You know those Oxford Commons people. You better watch out for them when you move your church out there. We're not like those Wellsgate people. Wellsgate, I'm just making that up. I've never heard that. But you can see how easy it is to all of a sudden demonize entire neighborhoods and even entire races of people and blame them if it weren't for the poor, if it weren't for the rich, if it weren't for the blacks, if it weren't for the whites, if it weren't for the Asians. We look to become blamers when life isn't going the way in which we want. Well, I simply want to put in front of you this morning that Christianity has never taught that when you get the Spirit, your troubles go away. It's never taught that. It's absolutely contrary to the experience of Jesus. And I think it's one of the reasons why Christianity has the credibility that it does. It rings authentic because Jesus, even when he's following God's path, can struggle. Look, this is worth stressing a little bit more. Suffering in your life will actually unpack for you the real terms of the salvation that you think you have. The gospel, if the gospel is come to Jesus and get a better life, that really is no salvation at all. If that's your gospel, Jesus is just another mechanism on your path to self-fulfillment. But so when suffering happens, so many times these people will hit the door because frankly, Jesus was never their Lord in the first place. When Jesus stopped working on my terms, then I abandoned him. Uh, Speaking of Brian Habig, uh, Brian put a great illustration in one of the chapters he wrote in a book we co-authored on the doctrine of the church called The Enduring Community, where he was talking about when the movie Top Gun came out in the 1980s. Now look, if you're not familiar with this movie, there's never been a moment in Hollywood where military service has ever looked quite as sexy as it did in Top Gun. And it turns out that the first people to notice this were military recruiters. And you may not remember this. I remember it. When you came out of the movie theater having watched Top Gun, there was a little table on the outside with a recruiter waiting to sign you up. And it was an overwhelming success. The reports that came out in some articles said that he like tripled their sort of signees who were jacked up from the movie, like absolutely sign me on. But don't you wish you could have been there a few months later where the guy is there in basic training, his face is in the mud, and he's looking around being like, this ain't what I signed up for. And where is Kelly McGillis? In other words, we oftentimes launch into something and we realize that I was here on my agenda, not somebody else's. Well, look, how many people leave Christianity not because they came to believe it to be false, but because they came to find out that their own idolatries were not being served in the midst of it. Hmm. They weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping the life they thought they should have and maybe deserved. But Jesus shows us a different way. And that brings me to my second point, and that is the center of the fight. The first one is the inevitability of the conflict. Suffering is inevitable, But we've got to look at what this fight is really about. Keller makes the great point that what's really going on between Satan and Jesus are two competing visions of life, two ways of approaching the world around them. And you won't notice it until you notice how strange these temptations are. 
And they're strange because if you think about it, they are things that Jesus could easily have justified that he wanted and needed it should he wanted them. Look at this. In temptation number one, you know, Luke reminds us that the fast that Jesus was on to stay away from bread was over. What would have been wrong without making bread? He made, he had the means, he had the opportunity. The fast was over. Why wouldn't he? Second temptation, Satan shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and offers them to him an authority to do so. Well, isn't that what Jesus came to do, was to take authority over all the realms? Why would it have made any difference if he had to bow down to Satan in order to get it? Third temptation, Satan brings Jesus to the center of the city, to this high pinnacle where everyone could be wowed by a miracle of Jesus falling off the temple and being swooped in and saved by an angel. Why wouldn't he want to do that? It was in the prophecy, after all. What would keep him from it? In other words, what harm would there have been in Jesus doing any of these things? Well, the answer to that question is, if Jesus took the bait for any one of these temptations, it would have been the first time that he used his miraculous power to meet his own ends. In other words, Satan was trying to get Jesus to change his entire mission from one of my life poured out for yours to one of you people exist to meet my needs. It would have changed it fundamentally. Satan was trying to get Jesus not to be the suffering servant, not to go the way of the cross, to get him to avoid the way of suffering. And what Keller goes on to say at this point, I think it's genius, is that it's the little choices. These were tiny little decisions that he says end up really being the real rudder for your direction in life. These temptations were things in Jesus that no one in the world would ever have cared about or probably even seen, but they were huge for the direction of who you become. Keller says this. He says, There is a line right down the middle of every human heart. When you go one way or the other, you take a step towards the character of each person. When you walk in a room, do you look around and judge the room and say, these the kind of people that I need to be associated with? Do these people have the right connections? These are decisions that are made either towards Jesus' kingdom or towards Satan's. But notice, the first choice is a little mundane choice. Bread, an everyday thing. But it's the little choices that lead to the big ones. I ended up looking up an article that Keller referred to in the New York Times about a movie entitled Max. Uh, that was about the early life, the childhood of Adolf Hitler. As it turns out, there were some Jewish groups. It was very controversial. There were some Jewish groups that protested the making of the film because they were concerned that it was going to humanize Hitler. Um, But the writer and director was a guy named Menno Mehis, and he said that he got the idea of making the movie after he read uh, Albert Speer's book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, uh, Hitler's Architect. And he said after he read that, he suddenly realized that he had always thought of Hitler as a monster. But now he was suddenly seeing that it was his choices, tiny little mundane choices choices that fashioned him into what he became. Here's what he says in this article. He says, and it hit me. Hitler, who I'd always thought of as a demented monster, who wasn't human at all, was really just like us. He wasn't born a monster or spawned a monster. He actually decided to become a monster. Because he tried becoming an artist and found becoming a monster was easier. My movie isn't about Hitler's great crimes. The audience knows all about them already. 
My movie is about his small sins, his emotional cowardice, his relentless self-pity, his envy, his frustration, the way he collected and nurtured offenses. Hitler, just like Osama and Saddam and Milosevic, oblige us, listen to this, by representing an uncomplicated view of evil. But nobody wakes up one day to slaughter thousands. They make choices one at a time. Look, y'all, one of the more particular issues I think that Christians deal with, I deal with this, is the way we think about temptations. You may be thinking this way right now. We tend to bolster ourselves for like the big full frontal assault for a temptation. Here, you want some drugs? We're ready. Uh, Your boss is going to walk in and say something to the effect of like, hey, you want to make some policies that gouge the poor? It's not the way our temptations come to us. What happens is 99% of the time is subtle, tiny things are what really undo us. You see, every day we are faced with the burden of living with people who inevitably fail to live up to our expectations for what we think they should be. And every day, we make those same kind of choices to oblige our self-pity, to feel sorry for ourselves, to allow envy to sort of fester with endless conversations about them. We complain about them to others. Maybe even sometimes we might even nurse violent daydreams about that person. See, we nurture these offenses until not only do we start blaming that person, but we start blaming everyone else who's like that person. And how far are we away from taking entire social classes, maybe even entire races, dare we say even political parties, and lumping them all together and saying, those people, if it weren't for them, nurturing a world that ought to bow to my needs. This is the line that Jesus is laying down. When did it start? It starts when you decided that the world existed for your pleasure. That's when it started. Jesus battles Satan to say that he is going to inaugurate an entire new way of living, a way that refuses to center the world around me. Hopefully you can see now how insipid it is to sort of present the gospel in purely self-satisfying terms. You've just reversed everything when you put it that way. So there we go. That's what the center of this fight is. How does the world lay out? That's my second point. Third point, and finally, is this. What is the key to victory? I don't know about you, but I'm feeling uncomfortably guilty. But I think there's an overt and and sort of a more foundational answer to that question from Michael Wilcock in this one. There's two ways in which a Christian fights and deals with the battles of temptation. Number one, Jesus lived by Scripture. Did you notice this? Every answer that he gives to the devil is a quote from the Bible. (laughs) In other words, Jesus looks in the midst of his suffering and he knows the Bible so well that it has fully shaped his understanding of the world around him. In other words, Jesus didn't just sort of memorize the Bible so he could you know, throw magic verses at the devil so he would flee. No, what happened was is he looked at something that we don't often get, and that is that the Scripture is a depiction for us of ultimate reality. 
it's the, it's the pattern of all of reality. And therefore, whenever a false version of life presented himself, itself to Jesus' senses, he rejected it as false, out of hand. Look, this is at the heart of the reason why we fail spiritually the way in which we do. Because there's another story that we start believing. Do you realize this? The experiences that we have are based upon a narrative of life that we are living in and through. And you can memorize Bible verses and go to Bible studies all day long and still never have that story penetrate to the point where you see your life through it and not just in it. That's what Jesus is trying to give us, a sense of resisting temptation. And so, I don't know. It's worth asking the question, isn't it? Like, what patterns in the life are you developing that regularly put you in front of the Bible? You came here this morning, so congratulations. You all get a free pass. Congratulations. But are there not times in which we are, not to check a ain't I religious box, where we need to put ourselves regularly in front of weighing my actions and my reactions in the balance of God's Word, where I'm arresting bad thought patterns and taking them to the Bible and see how the Bible looks at it. Like this is what our small group ministry is really for in this church. Now we're revamping some of those things. We're trying to make other options open. The staff literally is working every day on stuff like this. And in the future, you're going to see some changes in that regard. But in the end, it's going to be on your initiative to look and say, what does this story say? How can I immerse myself in that? So the scripture has got to be a part of this temptation resistance. But secondly, and this is more foundational, I think, dealing with temptation has a lot to do with what Jesus is doing in this moment. There's a couple cues in the text that you'll notice. First of all, you'll see that Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. Wilcox sees this as a tip-off to remind us of when the Jews spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness before they went to the promised land. Remember that story? So what he says is, is when Jesus begins to respond with the Bible, he starts to quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Actually, all three of his responses come from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 9. Well, what happened in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy was the place where God's people voluntarily put themselves under the law. So you see what Jesus is doing? The answers he gives are basically saying, look, man shall not live by bread alone. Therefore, I won't live by bread alone. God has told men to worship God alone, and therefore I will worship God alone. God has told men that they should not put God to the test. Therefore, I will not put God to the test. Do you see what he's doing? Jesus in that moment is deliberately emptying himself of his own power and glory so that he can put himself in our place under the law so that he could redeem those under the law by creating a perfect record that will in the end be our substitute. This is at the heart of it. It was something that he did for us. Like we talked about last week, there was a first Adam who under his temptation failed. But here comes the second Adam who under his temptation succeeds for you and for me. Look, all temptation, the verse we read from James, I'm going to read another one here in just a second, extends from our desires. Did you hear what that passage said? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his desire. And when desire, then desire, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Therefore, 
If you're struggling with temptations, it means that you have to focus on changing your desires. But here's the funny thing. You don't change your desires by focusing inward. That's the path of willpower. And my guess is some of you have tried this path. It ain't working. Because the more you go inside to try harder next time, the less power you find there to curb temptations. No, your desire changes when you start looking at something else. In other words, it's the object of your desire that's in question. Jesus' association with his people, this building of a perfect record on our behalf, is intended to draw our focus, and thereby our desires, away from ourself to his kindness, to the sacrifice that he's made, to his substitution on our behalf, to his nearness, to, to his fullness, to his perfection. In short, his love. When I was a kid, I remember walking into uh, my living room and my father was watching the TV version of the movie Patton. You know, George C. Scott in Patton. I remember him at the beginning of the movie standing in front of that big flag and it was the TV version, so like every three or four words was a bleep <laughs> if you've ever seen the real movie version of it. But I remember kind of getting fascinated by Patton. Great World War II general, you know? And I found a quote by Patton that goes like this. He says, If you're going to be a leader, then do everything you ask of those you command. Do you hear that? Do everything that you ask of those you command. Now, why was that inspirational for him? You want to know why? Because he got in the trenches with them. He was in it with them. He was... It's probably not a mistake that this is one of the fiercest of fighting men in World War II because he was with them. Hey, here's my question for you this morning. When you struggle with temptation, what does it look like for you to ask the presence of Jesus into the midst of that struggle, into the moment of that struggle? That's the question. Because what I think you'll find is, is Jesus is the true superhero. Yeah, he's like the old Superman. He's perfect. He is Teflon-coated. But he's also one who understands weakness. He came underneath the weakness. He took it upon himself, yet without sin, in order to redeem those who are in desperate need of a hero, of a superhero, to come in and to save. When you see Jesus in that way, it begins to root its way in and change my desire. Have you discovered that? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you walk us in and assist us? Because the truth is, this room is too full of people for this not to be a place of besiegement. For so many people not knowing exactly how they're even going to make it through the next round of fearful temptation. We are wrecked by our inward desires. But we need you to come and trade whatever it is that we are focused on with your glory, with the joy that comes from knowing that you took our place. If you would root that there, we might find new power that we didn't know before as we see the world through the eyes of your word and through your sacrifice. Maybe we can change. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.